for the rest of us, we are going to uh, pick up where we have left off in our series here at the waterfront where we are looking at moments from the life of Jesus where he has these meaningful one-on-one encounters with everyday people. And the heart behind this is is really like, I think Jesus is incredibly compelling. And you can say what you want about Christianity and the church and a lot of the kind of religious baggage that many of us carry or, or have been brought up with. But Jesus himself, the man, God in the flesh, who we've believed historically for the last 2,000 years has been the savior to redeem humanity. Uh, Like, I think he as a person is incredibly compelling. And so my heart is as we explore these moments in the biographies of Jesus and the gospels written by his earliest followers and see his interactions with people, we might be able to learn a bit of who this Jesus is, to be able to see him a bit more clearly and to encounter him in a meaningful way. They say you shouldn't back a dog into a corner. That when you back a dog into a corner, you leave them with no option but to, you know, bring out kind of the worst in them, their, their, their uh, aggressive instinct to snap at you. They, that you shouldn't force them into a place where they are going to be seen at their worst. And the story we're looking at today from the life of Jesus that's recorded in John chapter 8, this is a moment where the religious leaders are trying to back Jesus into a corner. They're trying to trap him in a way where they're hoping the worst of him is going to come to the surface. And they'll have reason to uh, arrest him and eventually execute him. See, at this point in the gospel narrative, as you read through the biographies of Jesus, there's moments where you see the controversy start to arise, where the religious leaders at the day, they start not really appreciating what Jesus is saying and what he's doing and the way that he seems to kind of side skirt the authority of the temple and of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious establishment of the day. They're looking for reason to get rid of him. And so they're trying to back him into the corner to give essentially the dog, give the opportunity for the dog to bite them so they can put him down, so to speak. Now, the passage that we're looking at, it's printed at the front of your handout here. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is, this is a little bit tricky. It says it's John chapter 8, but I'm going to be very honest with you. Biblical scholars are pretty well convinced that John didn't write this passage. And just, just before we dive in, I want to let you know that, that most often in your Bible, when you open up to this part in the Gospel of John, there's going to be some kind of footnote or something that says, this wasn't in the earliest versions of the Gospel of John. So we're looking at a passage that there's a little bit of controversy around it. And I think we, we can maturely handle that as, as those who are trying to understand who Jesus is, that that things aren't easily as cut and dry in terms of what we might wish they were in terms of the historicity of where these stories come from. This probably wasn't originally part of the Gospel of John, but it was a story that was circulating in the early church. There's a guy named Eusebius who was one of the first historians of the church. We're going on a little nerd rabbit trail, sorry. 
an early historian of the church named Eusebius. And, and he recorded a lot of what happened in the early church. And he spoke of a friend of his named Papias, who was another early church leader, who was a disciple of a man named Polycarp, who was directly a disciple of John, like Jesus' disciple. And Papias, who Eusebius writes about, he knows this story. He told of a story about this woman who was brought before Jesus because of her sin, etc. And so we know this was a story that was around in the early church. It just probably doesn't land here neatly in John chapter 8. It was probably added in later. And here's how I like to think about it. Remember your high school history textbook? The thing was probably like people drew all over the faces of the illustrations in it. You know what I mean? Like they, they weren't nice textbooks by the time that you got your hands on them. But you, you would have your high school you know, history textbook and you're reading about you know, World War I or something. And then your teacher gives you a handout to the class and says, here's something that's not covered by the textbook, but this is important history about, you know, what happened during World War I. So if you were like me, you didn't put that in like a separate binder and sort of way. You shoved that in your textbook because it needed a place to go and it fits with what you're learning about World War I. This is probably a similar thing. Like this is, this is a story about Jesus that was added in because they needed a place for it to go. But it probably wasn't John who wrote it. Just, I'm just putting that out there before we dive into the passage today. We can still learn from it. John, even at the end of his gospel, says, listen, there's a ton of stories about what Jesus did that I haven't recorded. And if we tried to record all of them, it would be a much longer book. And so some scholars say maybe this is one of those stories. Let's dive in. This passage that we're looking at is one where we are seeing the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to have a reason in order to arrest him and ultimately to kill him in a way that isn't going to start a riot because Jesus was becoming a popular teacher. He was healing people. He was interacting with those who were disenfranchised by the religious establishment of the day and and people were starting to like him. All of a sudden, you you know start attacking this guy in public. All of a sudden, if you just come up and kidnap him, there's going to be riots that form. And so there was a lot of scheming that was happening at the time. And, and we'll read this passage to see what is going on here. You can follow along at the front of your handout. It said, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back in the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest 
until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. What a moment. Like, imagine being someone in the crowd at the time. You're just walking through Jerusalem at the temple. You see a crowd forming, so you hop in to see what's going on. And all of a sudden, this scenario goes down. These religious leaders were trying to trip Jesus up. And they were doing so by very strictly or seemingly strictly following a law from the Old Testament recorded in Deuteronomy 22 that that said that if someone was caught in the act of adultery and they were engaged or betrothed, then the, the man and the woman were both to be brought to the city gate and they were to be stoned to death if there were two witnesses. Now, what's interesting about this situation is there's no man that's brought. What's going on here? Where'd the guy go? Takes two to tango in this kind of deal. Now, either he got away or he was let off the hook. Maybe he knew the, uh, the accusers. And what's also interesting is it, it took two witnesses to be able to declare that something like this happened. And so if these, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, who's around? Which two witnesses are there to see what happened in order to condemn. But what's most interesting to me is instead of taking them to the city gate, which is what the law explicitly says, they took them to the temple because that's where they knew Jesus was. Instead of having a very strict, literal interpretation of the law, they decided let's twist this to try to trip up Jesus. Instead of going to the city gate, they bring this mess into the temple. Into the outer courts of the temple where people were gathered to, uh, to spend time in worship. They were there to offer their sacrifices. They were there, like, like many of those in the crowd with Jesus, to hear teaching about God. All of a sudden, it becomes this place of a public trial. And I think all of these kind of pieces of evidence add up to show us that these religious leaders, they didn't care about justice. They didn't care about justice being done in an act of adultery. They didn't care about, you know, helping someone whose, whose spouse or their betrothed had, had cheated on them. They just wanted to get at Jesus. And they were going to use this situation and manipulate it in a way to get at him. It even says in verse 6, they were trying to trip, uh, trap him into saying something they could use against him. That was the motivation, not justice. Their intention was warped. See, what we learn about the Pharisees and the religious leaders at this time is they had a deep motivation and desire for the purity of Israel. To say, we need the people of Israel to be entirely pure so that God will send his Messiah to be the redemption of our people. 
to overthrow the Romans that are occupying our land, to establish a kingdom so a descendant of David can be on the throne. But we need Israel to be pure. And their view of purity was a purity through eradication. We're just going to cut out the impurity. Get rid of whatever doesn't fit. We see this in, in the, the mindset of Paul before he became an apostle. When he was a Pharisee who went and he hunted down and arrested Christians and brought them to be tried and killed because they were a, a deviation of a Jewish sect. This idea that we need a pure Israel and anything that is outside of the lines must be eradicated. We see this even today. We see it in a lot of religious movements. In fact, some of us, maybe that's been our experience in church. If, if you don't fit well within the lines, then you're cut out. Well, we also see it in our culture more broadly. Like the whole phenomenon of like cancel culture, I think is a prime example of this. Like if you don't purely fit the ideology of, of our culture, then, then you will be purified by eradication. Like you will be cut off. The problem is with these Pharisees, in their zeal for this purity, they nearly create a massacre in the temple. They nearly desecrate their place of worship by bringing people in to be stoned in its very courts. They're missing the forest for the trees. And I would even argue that Jesus has a desire for a pure people. A pure bride, as, as we read about in the writings of the New Testament, that he's creating a people that would be like a bride to Christ, a pure bride. But Jesus' form of purity that he's looking for isn't a purity through eradication. Not a purity through removing anyone who, isn't, uh, who doesn't fit the bill. I'm going to argue this morning that the purity that Jesus desires is a purity through transformation, not eradication. And so as this case is brought before Jesus, he does this really strange thing. He stoops down and he writes with his finger in the dirt. And there's as many explanations for this as there are people who come up with them of speculating what is it that he was writing. And often that's what it is, right? Is what on earth is he writing in the dirt? You know, someone jokingly said it was all the, uh, the phone numbers of the girlfriends of the Pharisees that were around. Some people said maybe it was all the sins that the Pharisees themselves had committed. And, and sometimes in the speculation we can say, well, it doesn't matter. Let's, let's just glaze over it. But in my study this week, I found something very interesting that I think is actually a helpful way of looking at Jesus's stooping down to write with his finger in the ground. We may not know what he wrote, but the fact that he stooped to write with his finger is important. Because these Pharisees, they were using the law of Moses and weaponizing it as a way to, to kill this woman and to trap up Jesus. They were drawing on the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is 
long before in the history of the Jewish people, after God brought them out of Exodus, you know, with the 10 plagues and Charlton Heston comes down from the mountain with the law that God gave him. But when Moses is up on that mountain with God, we read that God stoops down and with his own finger writes the law upon the tablets. How interesting is it that Jesus, God in the flesh, when confronted by the law and is asked to give his judgment in comparison to it, stoops down and with his own finger writes in the sand before offering his judgment. See, they were trying to trip him up and to say, hey, do you think you're equal or above the law? And I think here Jesus is actually playing into that and showing, yes, I am. That the God who wrote the law, I am he in the flesh. And just as you're using it to try to get rid of this woman or to, to trip me up, here he is in the flesh, writing with his finger the way God did on the mountain when he gave the law, the very law they were using to Moses. And he says, let the one who is without sin or who has never sinned throw the first stone. Now, the translation that we're looking at here says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. That, that captures maybe half of the nuance that's there. Yes, this whole idea of, listen, none of you have sinned or none of you are sinless. Therefore, none of you are truly worthy to judge. But it also has the connotation of if your conscience is actually clear about what you're doing right now, go ahead. It's challenging them pointedly in this moment of in this judgment you're bringing upon this woman, are you actually doing this in clear conscience? Is there any hidden agenda behind what you're doing? In throwing this stone and ending her life, are you going to be able to sleep at night by bringing this case forward? It's both a pointed in the moment, where's your heart right now? And also a way of saying none of you ultimately are, the, are worthy of being judged. There's only one who is. And what happens next is remarkable. The fact that it says from the oldest to the youngest, they all walk away. I think this is overlooked in this story. The fact that Jesus' words cut to the heart of an angry mob of Pharisees looking to trap him. Where they go from, from bloodthirsty to humble, I think is actually miraculous. And shows how Jesus and he alone can cut to the depth of even the hardest heart. From the oldest to the youngest, they walked away, leaving Jesus with this woman in the midst of the crowded temple complex. Imagine just the, the silence of what just happened. The awkward, like, so can we, like, carry on with our day? Is this over? And Jesus asks, who condemns this woman? Where are your accusers? Do none of them condemn you? 
And he says, neither do I. What's significant in this moment is we're reminded in Jesus' saying, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. He is the one who has never sinned. He is the one who was the lawgiver and also the one who has the perfect right to execute the law. He is the perfect judge who could, if he wanted to, bring about that kind of justice in the moment, but he chose mercy. See, the kind of purity that Jesus is after is not a purity of eradication, but of transformation. Jesus forgives this woman, and he says to her, go and sin no more. Now, we could take this last line from this story and we could say, wow, okay, Jesus is super merciful. It means everything is okay. That you can do whatever you want and Jesus is always going to forgive you and like it, it doesn't matter what you do. I think what Jesus says here in this last line in, in saying go and sin no more is reminding us that the adultery wasn't okay. But she's forgiven. I, I grew up when um, me and my siblings would get in a tussle and, you know, one of us would be wrong and we'd go and say sorry to the other one. Often the response that we naturally had was, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. I think as I'm raising my kids, I'm trying to teach them rather than saying it's okay to say, I forgive you. Because I, I think sometimes we, we minimize the fact that in saying sorry, there was wrong done. And that forgiveness is actually a, a beautiful choice to say in light of the wrong that you've done, I choose to forgive rather than it's okay. What you did doesn't matter. No, it does, it does matter. But I'm choosing to forgive. Jesus looks at this woman and what he's saying isn't, it's okay. But it's, I forgive you. Knowing that in weeks from then, he would hang on a cross and as he did so, he would die for the sin that woman committed that day. That he in his own flesh on the cross took on the consequences of her sin. He says, I forgive you. Jesus' desire for a pure people is through a purity of transformation. One where he is seeking not to kill that which is impure, but he chooses to die for the impure. He takes upon the sin on himself on the cross, not to say it was okay, but to be able to say it is forgiven. Our sin has consequence, but in Jesus we see God choosing not to eradicate us, because of our sin, but choosing to forgive and transform us. I think something else for us to remember is his go and sin no more 
isn't placing on her this unbearable burden of don't you dare slip up again. Like you have to be perfect here on out. In Jesus, we have the one who offers us the grace of forgiveness, but also as followers of Jesus, he is the one who walks with us and empowers us. And so even though we do sin, there is mercy and forgiveness for us because Jesus took that upon himself on the cross. But when he says, go and sin no more, he is walking with us moving forward. And if Christ is your king and you're walking with him, you have the spirit of God dwelling in you, which is the very presence of the almighty, which is working to transform you from the inside out into the image of God. Throughout our life, we have Jesus walking with us who is helping us to overcome the patterns of sin in our life. And as this woman in in her life, if she chooses to follow Jesus as her Messiah, she is going as a woman forgiven, but also going as a woman empowered. Empowered to say, I can leave behind whatever relationship that was. I don't have to be stuck in that pattern. Empowered to go on with her decisions moving forward to say, I can choose this life that Jesus is inviting me to. A life of transformation, not stuck in the rut of my sin. And when I do slip up, there is a merciful Jesus who is not trying to eradicate me, but is trying to transform me. So maybe you're here this morning. And you, you're feeling the burden of your own sin. Maybe this weekend was rough for you. Maybe there's something from your past that you, you are still bearing the burden of your sin from. The invitation for you this morning is to bring that to Jesus. Bring it to him and you will be met not with a judge who is ready to eradicate, but one who wants to forgive and transform. Bring it to Jesus. He is the one who offers you the forgiveness and the lifting of that burden that you need. Maybe you're here this morning and you are incredibly skeptical and cynical of all this church stuff and all this Jesus stuff, and you're just waiting for me to be done. And first of all, I thank you for your patience. But second of all, like maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're a little bit like the Pharisees and religious leaders this morning of you're just waiting for like the thing to trip Jesus up. You're just waiting for the thing where you can now dismiss Jesus and put away that thing, the, the nagging thing in your conscience to say, I don't have to worry about who he is anymore or worry about what that means for my life. I want you to know that Jesus can even cut to the depth of your heart. And in your trying to trip him up, maybe you'll be met with a level of wisdom and winsomeness that can speak actually to the depth of your longing rather than what you're trying to cover up. Thirdly, to us folk, church folk, my microphone cut out there. Those of us who maybe we grew up in the church, we spent a lot of time around Christians, we're, we, we have the church thing down pat. We of all people 
should know that we are not those without sin. We of all people should know that we are made pure by transformation, not because we in ourselves are perfect. And so how we treat others as Christians, brother or sister, is one where we bring people to Jesus not to be judged, not to have him throw down his judgment, but so that they might experience the same mercy and transformation that we have. Our desire is not the eradication, but transformation of the world around us, of the community we find ourselves in, of the one who wronged us, Jesus is inviting us not to be those who bring folks to Jesus in, in judgment, but to bring them there because he is the one in whom we find our hope. He's the one in whom we find forgiveness. He's the one in whom we find empowerment for the road ahead. He's our hope. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you, you look upon us with tremendous mercy. And when you see our sin in the way that you saw both the sin of this woman who was caught in adultery, but also the sin of those who brought her there, you meet us and remind us that on the cross you took that upon yourself. And so Jesus, what, wherever our heart is this morning, would you meet us there? Whether we're in need of your forgiveness, whether we are in need of our hearts being kind of cut through, through the hardened layers of denial and rejection, or whether we're in a place where we need to be reminded of who we are as your people, would you, would you speak to the depth of our heart? Would you meet us where we're at and bring us close to you. Jesus, would we look more like you than the religious leaders in the story? Knowing that you are the one who offers the forgiveness that we need. It's in your name we pray. Amen.